Okay, does anybody have last week's lesson? Uh, I've got a couple of points to finish on it, and then I will get to this week's. So if you need last week's lesson, does anybody need last week's lesson? Everybody has last week's lesson. How encouraging. In, in last week's lesson, we're in chapter 16, and it is about the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is about to be crucified on a cross. He is about to be resurrected from that cross in three days. He is going to ascend to glory after 50 days. 40 days of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is going to come after 50. And so this church, this organism created by His grace through His blood is going to be formed. And He is telling His disciples that that uh, during this time of His leaving and resurrecting and the Holy Spirit coming, that they are going to experience great difficulties in life. They're going to be scattered. They're going to be tempted. And every one of them are going to be martyred except for the Apostle John. And so he is in love. He is giving them an intimate picture of who he is. He's reinforcing what he's been teaching them for three and a half years. He's preparing them for his, for his leaving. And he's, he's, he's preparing them because the Holy Spirit is going to come. We've talked about him in great detail. He's the third person of the Trinity. He's God of very gods. He's same in purpose. And he is different in function. But he, the Holy Spirit, is going to come and indwell believers permanently starting at Pentecost. And he is going to perform all these different functions that we started with last week. And we started... Uh, chapter 16, verse 5, and we said the first three works of the Spirit were to the believer. And uh, so these first three works, the first three were to the believers. And we said that the works, this uh, work of the Spirit, would we say the first work was, if you have last week's notes, we said the first uh, work that he's going to do in chapter 16 is that he's going to keep us from stumbling. And so we see the Spirit is going to keep us from stumbling. We talked about that in great detail. The world hates us. It wants to destroy us. And this word stumbling is set a trap for. So the Holy Spirit is going to keep the world from setting a trap for us and ensnaring us. The world hates us and He wants to destroy us, our ministry, our testimony. So the work of the Holy Spirit is going to keep us from stumbling when we go through trials and tribulations and various trials and sufferings. And the second thing we said is that the Holy Spirit is going to help us bear witness of Christ. One of the roles of the Spirit uh, uh, is for us that He's going to give us power and He's going to give us authority. Remember we talked about the word power and we said it's two Greek words. One is Exousia, which is the the capability, the Holy Spirit is going to give us the capability, and the Holy Spirit is going to give us the dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite, and this is going to be the uh, the power. So when we witness, the Holy Spirit comes along beside us, and the Holy Spirit is the person who makes the transformation of the heart. We are simply obedient to the call to tell all men, but the Holy Spirit, He's the one who must create the change in the heart of men, and He is the one responsible to do that. We are simply a barrier of the good news. We are ministers of reconciliation, and we are ambassadors for Christ. We talked about that in great detail. The third thing we talked about was that the, uh, He's going to keep us from being sorrowful. We talked about... Uh, 
the sorrow of the uh, disciples that they were going to immediately experience in six or seven hours. But the Holy Spirit's work is to bring joy into our soul. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy, which is internal contentment regardless of external circumstance. And we talked about that in great detail. And then we talked about the three works to the unbeliever and uh, these works, unbeliever, and we talked about these in great detail, that the Holy Spirit is going to convince men about sin. We talked about that. The work of the Spirit is to convict a man that he's not right with God, that he needs to repent and turn from his sin, the consequence of sin. And then we said that the Holy Spirit will convince men of righteousness, and that is the Holy Spirit points to Jesus Christ as the righteous one, and we must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And then the last thing we discussed, that the Holy Spirit to the world, to the unbeliever, that he is going to convince men of judgment. And we talked about that, that that refers to Satan's judgment. He was judged at the cross. He was found wanting, and his reign over men is finished. Christ has completed his work, so all of his people are freed from the power of sin, from the consequence of sin, from the condemnation of sin, not the consequence perhaps, but the condemnation of sin. And so we discussed that last week. Now I want to finish this up. There's two more works to the believer, and that would be found in point, uh, I think, E and F from this uh, G and H. Uh, so we're, uh, what we're going to count on right here is this work to the believer, and this is going to dovetail with the text for today. And, and, and point, uh, this point is he guides us in all truth. The Holy Spirit guides us to all truth. It is amazing to me, as you read the Gospels and you read uh, Jesus' ministry to the disciples, how obtuse they were and how unable they were to even comprehend some of the basics of, of faith and Christianity. It is because the Holy Spirit had not yet come to guide them and to make them understand truth. You and I, we cannot read this book. This book is spiritually discerned. And it is designed to to penetrate our hearts and our minds and renew our minds and our thoughts and shape us like Jesus and to develop a relationship with Him. Uh, with Him, And that is determined and predicated upon the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one. He illuminates our mind. So when I'm reading, if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, the Holy Spirit has to produce that in my mind and in my heart, this desire to admit that Jesus is Lord. And He has to change my heart. And He has to create uh, the repentance in my heart. And so the Holy Spirit guides us into truth. So when we read what we're about to read about it, which is a difficult text, figurative language, the Holy Spirit, what He does is He works as, he, as we read the text. He brings to mind other texts. He reminds us what Jesus has said. And then He says, go to Paul, go to Deuteronomy. And so the Holy Spirit puts all these things together and it makes sense to our minds. And it brings to 
us to be illuminated by the Word of God so we know His mind and His heart and His will for us. But that's the work of the Spirit. He guides us in all truth. Let's look at 16. Uh, let's start verse 12. Uh, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. Remember how many times Jesus told his disciples, I have many things to say to you, but not now because you're not able. So he says this again, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And who is the way, the truth and the life? The Holy Spirit's primary function is to bring us to relationship with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is submissive to Christ within the Godhead. Just as Christ is submissive to the Father and everything He says from the Father, He speaks. Nothing He speaks comes from Him, but it comes from the unity of Himself with the Father as He humbles Himself as a man. And so as a man, He humbles Himself and He came to accomplish the Father's purpose for him. His Father gave him a people. His Father cut, sold him to go, and he went. And he died on the cross for those people the Father had given him. And every one of the people that the Father had given him will come to him. And so that is, that is the role of Christ as he comes to the earth. And then the role of the Spirit is to glorify Christ. And I've said this many times. If you're in a church or if you're talking to people, and conversation comes around to the Holy Spirit, and people start emphasizing the Spirit and charismatic gifts and speaking in tongues and all these things, you know pretty quickly where people stand, right? So the Holy Spirit never usurps the authority of Christ, never lifts its himself up above Christ, but is always submissive to Christ, and he always points people and glorifies Christ. So if it gets out of kilter in the conversation, you know that it is anti-biblical thinking and teaching because the Spirit never does that. He never confuses, but he always points us to God's salvation. That's his Son, Jesus Christ. So he guides us in truth. <coughs> Jesus is the ultimate truth. We've talked about what truth is when we talked about the way, the truth, and the life. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the Holy Spirit, when He comes at Pentecost, the disciples, then it says they remembered what Jesus said, and it clicked because the Spirit is guiding them to Jesus and understanding the words of Jesus. Everybody understand that? God has chosen to express Himself in Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we've talked about that, perhaps ad nauseum to you, but we've talked about this, that He's the deity, He's Christ, the Son of God. And I love what this says in G. The Spirit guides us to, in the word Greek, the Greek word for guides us, that word literally means penetrates us into the reality of Christ. The Greek is very definitive. It's very specific. I don't think we have a word for that. But the Holy Spirit guides us, penetrates us into the reality of Christ so that our dull heads go, He is God. He did die. 
He did take our condemnation. He did appease the wrath. He did clothe us in His righteousness. All these things Christ did, we now can apprehend that by this gift of faith, which is from the Holy Spirit too, right? So we understand the package of the Godhead and the function of the Spirit gives us faith to apprehend Jesus, the Son of God. And we see that. And uh, and then the last thing, it says, uh, He will speak the truth. He will speak not in His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will tell you things to come. He will glorify me. So this last work of the Spirit is that the Spirit will glorify. He glorifies Christ. That is what He does. And that is what He will do. Until Christ returns, until he rules and reigns on this earth, which is what Keith talked about today, and Micah in the millennial reign of Christ. So we see this work of the Spirit first to the believers, then to the unbelievers, and then back to the believers. And now that's going to get us to where we are today. Does anybody understand this? Anything you need to add uh, to this? Uh, comments about this? And that will finish last week's lesson. Now, turn to verse 16. And would somebody read 16 through 33? And we are going to study this. And the key to understanding this difficult text is verse 25. And we're going to see as we read this, whomever does, that Jesus is speaking in figurative Language. See, verse 25 says, in the middle of these, in this, in these verses, between 16 and 33, almost in the middle, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language. So when we read the before and the after, we need to understand it's figurative language. And what is the definition of figurative language I have in the notes? Pardon me? Veiled, what is it? Veiled, I can't even hear or I can't even think and uh, I'm sorry, pointed. And I am obtuse, yes, it's veiled and it is generally the same word as your translation may say, a proverb. Or it may be, in this case, he's going to speak sometimes, and he is going to speak in allegory, which is a story with a specific intended meaning. So when Jesus says, I am speaking to you in figurative language, he purposely does that. And why does he do that? Why does he speak to the disciples in veiled, pointed Statements that are, and I think I've got pregnant with meaning, but we may not actually come to grasp with this total meaning of what he's trying to say. Think about this. What are the disciples, what kind of situation are they in and about to be in? Persecution, confrontation, anything else? And realize that the Holy Spirit hasn't yet come separation, they are not able to understand. So Jesus, in His 
masterful teaching way and as he condescends to men, as he understands our frame, he understands our inabilities or weaknesses, he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities as it tells us. So Jesus is going to teach his people lovingly in a way they can get it. And so he's not going to overwhelm them with too much information. So the reason Jesus speaks to the disciples in figurative language, and I love what this commentator says, total explicit predictions about future events would have overwhelmed the disciples' weak faith at this point. And so he goes back to uh, 16.12. He says, you're not able to hear this right now. So he speaks to them in figurative languages. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna give them some truths, but they're not going to be able to fully comprehend these truths until the Holy Spirit comes because if they would have gotten it all, they would have freaked out and they wouldn't have been able to compute it and it would have caused anxiety in their hearts so Jesus speaks to them figuratively now why does he speak to the lost people in Proverbs why does he speak to them like that somebody turn to Matthew 13 Jesus speaks to the lost world to the lost Jews to the lost scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees the leaders of Jewelry and to those who are not believers, he always speaks to them in these veiled stories, allegories, and he does it for a reason. Turn to Matthew 13, that's the, I call it the uh, parable chapter, many parables in this chapter. But why does Jesus speak in figurative language to lost people? Look at verse 13, verse 11. And somebody read 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. Loudly, slowly. Why did, we know why he does it to the believers at this time. Why does he speak this way to non-believers? Somebody feel free. So Jesus is saying, I'm speaking to this lost world to the Jewish nation, to the Jewish people, to the Jewish leaders. I have been speaking to them plainly for 2,000 years. I have told them my truths. I have sent to them my prophets, my warnings, my promises, my warnings. They have not heeded me. They have rejected me. So he told Isaiah, because they've rejected my truths, I'm going to... Give them ears that are not going to be able to hear. And I'm going to give them minds and eyes that are not going to be able to see or comprehend as a result of their, of their rebellion and their sin against me. I've been warning these people for 2,000 years. I've sent two people in to bring them into exile. I've done all these things. God is saying, I am going to take my gospel And I'm going to take it and I'm going to save the Gentile people because of the hardening of the Jews. And so I'm going to speak to them in Proverbs because it isn't granted to them to know the mysteries. They've rejected it. And so his message goes to the Jew first, 2,000 years. Now it's going to go to the Gentiles, the start of the church. There's going to be some Jews saved. But then again, there's going to be a time when this gospel is going to be clear to the Jew again. After all the Gentiles are brought in, we've talked about this. 
many times in the prophets. And there's going to be a time very soon. It's beginning when God again is going to reach out and his Holy Spirit is going to open the eyes of the nation of Israel. And we know that that's going to usher in the millennial kingdom when he rules and reigns from Jerusalem. But he speaks in figurative language to the lost because they've rejected his truths. He speaks to the disciples in figurative language because they would be overwhelmed if they understood everything that he's talking about. Everybody got where we're at? Now, let's read John 16 through 33. And then we're going to look at these three or four examples of figurative language. And hopefully we will not be dull of hearing them. Which will be preparation for the greatest chapter in the Bible, in my humble opinion. Which I don't know if I'm going to be able to do. Anyway, we'll see. 1616. Now, if you'll read uh, uh, 16 through 20 in the Sheila, if you'll go 21 through 24. And then uh, Valerie, if you'll read 25 through... uh, through uh, 28, and then Jeff, if you'll finish us off, 28 through 33. We'll read this, and we're going to look at these examples of figurative language and the purposes of them uh, commence. Okay, so Jesus, as he closes... His teaching to the disciples before he's crucified on the cross, before he prays for them in chapter 17, he speaks to them in figurative language because they can't quite get, grasp it. or don't want to overwhelm him. So he says this first one. He says this, and then they repeat it, and then he repeats it again. Verse 16, 17, 19. A little while you won't see me, and a little while you will see me. So obviously the meaning, the obvious meaning is what? What's the first meaning that's the most obvious? A little while you won't see me. A little while you will see me. So we got the cross. And we got the resurrection. A little while, he literally means in six hours, I'm going to die on a cross. And I'm going to be buried in the ground. A little while you won't see me. In a little while you will see me. And so in three days he rises from the dead and he appears to the disciples. And we see this appearing uh, in John chapter 20. I could get into more detail in the other uh, 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 synoptic gospels. But let's look at this. Uh, John 20. This is uh, uh, Friday. Uh, this is uh, Sunday morning. This is Sunday night after this has he's risen from the dead. Look at John 20. Verse 19, the same day at evening, the first day of the week, this is Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, when the, when the doors were shut, the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Jesus came, stood in the midst, and said, Peace be with you. When he'd said this, he showed him his hands and his sides, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and he said to them, Peace be to you, as the Father sends me, I send you. So the first meaning of this figurative language, in a little while, literally a few hours, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, it's going to be finished, I'm going to finish the work wherein I came. Three days, I'm going to rise from the dead, and I'm going to spell resurrection correctly. So three days, a little while you won't see me, 
A little while you will see me. Everybody get that one? Pretty self-explanatory. We see that one. Very simple. The second meaning of the word is this. He's speaking of his ascension. And he's speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit. After he is resurrected from the dead, he stays on this planet for 40 days. And then... He ascends into heaven, and where do we see that recorded? Predominantly and most specifically, we see that recorded in Acts 1. So let's look at Acts 1 really quickly. I'm not going to read it all. We know this. We're familiar with this. This is the start of the church. This is the coming of Pentecost. And he he ascends into heaven 40 days after he resurrects from the dead. He tells them to wait into Jerusalem until the promise comes of the giving of the Spirit. That happens at Penta 50 days after the resurrection. So for 10 days, they're praying after he ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes. So you little while you won't see me. The second meaning of this is that I'm going to ascend into heaven. And then a little while you will see me is a coming of the Spirit. How is the coming of the Spirit equal to little while you will see me? This is a little deeper meaning. This is something the disciples didn't grasp yet, and we can only grasp as we look back at history as the Spirit guides us into the truth. And as we're going to look at other verses that are going to define this. Before I get ahead of myself, let's go to Acts 1. We see Jesus standing with the disciples. Verse 4, He's dissembled with them, Acts 1-4. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which is the Spirit. He said, you've heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Matter of fact, it's 10. Therefore, when they came together, they said, Lord, will, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Still don't get it. Still don't really get the purpose of the death. They still think he's going to set up his political kingdom and you notice Jesus doesn't even answer this question because they still are not going to be able to get it right he says are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel right now and he says it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father is putting his authority but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and the end of the earth and when he'd spoken these things they watched and he was taken up a cloud received him out of their sight and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up two men who stood by them in white apparel said men of Galilee why do you stand gazing into heaven this same Jesus which was taken from you into heaven will come again in like matter as you saw him go into heaven meaning number two the ascension and you won't see me a little while you will see me and the question is How is the Holy Spirit's coming at Pentecost an answer, an explanation? Jesus says, a little while you will see me. No, not yet. The Holy Spirit 
manifests the reality of Christ in our hearts and our minds. So the Holy Spirit's function is to glorify and illuminate our minds so that we understand and comprehend the totality of who Christ is. So when Jesus says, a little while you will see me, when the Holy Spirit illumines your mind, you see Christ clearer than when you were sitting right beside him. So the disciples, although they weren't holding hands with Jesus, they weren't uh, reclining against his bosom at the at, as they was as, as they were at the at the at the uh, upper room discourse, which is where we are. Jesus saying the reality of who I am will be more clear to you, and you will see me more clearly than you did when I was right beside you. That's what that means. They didn't get that yet. But we, in hindsight, we look back. Yes, he told them that would be a helper. They didn't get that. They told them there's an advocate. They told them that, that the Spirit is going to illuminate in their mind. But when Jesus says, a little while I'm going to ascend, he meant when the Holy Spirit comes, you will see me clearly. And how do we know that? We look back at history and we look at the Scripture and we look at uh, Romans 8 9. Everybody knows this Scripture. But this is what He means and this is how the Spirit illumines our minds and our hearts. And remember we said that the Holy Spirit is a third person, yes. And He is specifically separate in His, in His subsistence as a member of the Godhead. But we also said practically there is difficult to separate Jesus' spirit from the Holy Spirit. Remember, we talked about that in great detail. And uh, but So when Jesus says, a little while you will see me, he's referring to the illuminating work of the Spirit. Look at, look at Romans 8 9. If you're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells, with you and in you is what that verb literally means in the Greek. Now, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raises Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So do you see now that the Holy Spirit indwelling you is giving you a comprehension of the work of Christ, his role, what he did, and we have a clearer understanding. We don't need to be told plainly, if you are the Christ, tell us. The Holy Spirit tells us, he was the Christ, okay? And so we see him now more clearly than we did, and we anticipate seeing him again. Remember what he said in Acts? The same way I'm going up, I'm going to come again. And so we see that. Another verse for this, uh, uh, we see this. Uh, let's look at Philippians 1 9, 1 19. This is just another way we, we know Jesus. He's talking to the church at Philippi regarding uh, their giving, regarding the change the gospel has worked in their life. He says to them, Paul says, I know this, that I'm going to be delivered from my bondage through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So this Spirit within us is Christ's Spirit, and it work is to see and know 
him. That is another verse. And then I'll, I'll give you one more. It's in First Peter. Uh, it's in one eleven that the Holy Spirit illumines our minds till we comprehend the reality of Jesus Christ. And we have his spirit indwelling us. And we see that in First Peter one eleven. Uh, uh, start at verse 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. See, this is they're looking forward to, but they're not comprehending it. They're anticipating it, but they don't yet understand it. They're searching carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow to them. It was revealed that not to themselves but to us. They were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through whom we have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. We now comprehend the mysteries of the gospel of Christ, that he came to die for sinners, to reconcile himself to God. Angels desired to see that. The prophets who look forward to it. The mysteries are now revealed. The Holy Spirit illuminates. And now we see Jesus and how they could not, they could only see them, see them, these promises through shadow, right? So that's what he means. A little while you will, won't see me, a little while you won't see me. And then lastly, certainly the last thing he's talking about is that, uh, the last thing he says is that our full joy, our full joy will be realized Not only at the coming of the Spirit, it will be realized when we see Him face to face. We have a blessed hope and assurance and certainty that Jesus, who ascended into heaven 2,000 years ago, will come back to this earth and we will see Him and our faith will no longer be necessary because we're going to apprehend Him by sight. Now we live by faith, right? Then we're going to see Him face to face. And all of these promises, this Holy Spirit, one of the many things that it does, it's a down payment. It's assurance. It's earnest money for the future. Everybody put a down payment on a house? What does that do? Shows you're sincere about the house, right? Jesus Christ, the Spirit, gives us assurance and this great hope that Christ will return and He will receive us to Himself and I, every eye is going to see Him and I could go on and on and on because the Spirit puts these voices in my head which is the Word, right? So that's how He works. So the full joy is going to be realized when we see Him face to face. Now Scripture says we see dimly through a glass, right? Then face to face. Now we know Him in part, but then, right, fully. And even in eternity, every day we're going to continue to see the other onion being unpeeled. Right? We're going to comprehend Him. So, He packs a lot into that, doesn't He? A little while you won't see Me, and a little while you will see Me. Consummated when He returns... When we're with Him in glory, blessed hope. Anybody have any comments or questions about that? Uh, 
And then we see 2024 and 2022 and 24 talks about the joy uh, fully realized when we see him face to face. All the promises are fulfilled. The actualization of the promises accomplished and we are forever with him in glory. And so that's what he means by a little while you won't see me and a little while you will see me. Everybody got that one? Beautiful. Number two. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Understand redemption. Understand reconciliation with your father. It's in grace. And yet the angels They can't comprehend that. Cannot comprehend. Cannot comprehend. Great. Good comment. Anybody else have a comment about that? That's a wow. Thank you for speaking figuratively. Thank you for the meaning veiled. Thank you for our experience in this, right? So we see that. Uh, second thing I think we want to look at is... Uh, I think I'm even in wrong notes. Well, we'll go by memory. There we go. Little won't see him little while. The second thing we see, the next figurative speech is verse 20. Assuredly, I say unto you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So the second thing he says is the world will rejoice. But you will be sorrowful. What does he mean by that? Why does the world rejoice? A little while you're not going to see him. What do they think they've done and why do they do what they do? A little while. The world is going to rejoice. You are going to be sorrowful. As Keith would say, let's unpack this. Why does the world rejoice? Why did they kill him? What did we talk about in John 15? We just finished this a couple weeks ago. John 15, 18. The world hates you. It hated me before it hated you. If you of the world, the world would love his own. But yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. The world rejoices because they hate Jesus. Because Jesus told them they were sinful and they had sinful hearts and they had no place in God the Father. He told them that they were liars like their father the devil. He told them that he could, they couldn't come to Him unless the Father drew Him. He told them they weren't His sheep and they couldn't believe. They hated Him without a cause. Remember we talked about that in great detail, fulfillment of Scripture. They hated Jesus and they rejoiced because they thought they had crucified him. The devil hates Jesus. He crucified and he was crucified. The devil thought he was defeating God's purposes, right? He's always tried to defeat God's purposes. 
from Genesis 3 when he deceives Eve into into, uh, disobeying and not trusting the word. He thought he had defeated Christ. And the first prophecy of Christ is the seed of the woman is going to bruise the serpent's head. So Satan has always wanted to rejoice in defeating the purposes of God and Jesus at the cross. He's done it through many, many ways throughout history. The Holocaust, he's done it through the the captivities, he's done it through all these different ways because he hates Jesus. He wants to thwart his plan for his people. The world rejoices. They think they have done this, but they did not. You're going to be sorrowful because you don't get it. You think that he's died on a cruel cross. You thought he was coming to rule and reign, take over the Roman Empire and rule and reign in a new kingdom, political kingdom. You're sorry. You don't get it, okay? The world will rejoice, but your sorrow, their rejoicing is going to turn to sorrow. This is the irony of this. And the sorrowfulness will turn to rejoicing and joy. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, right? So we see the sorrowfulness of the disciples is turned to rejoicing when Christ is victorious, and the joy of the earth in rejoicing because they hate Jesus is turned into permanent sorrow and sadness and defeat, right? Temporary, permanent contrasting teaching between the world system, the world, the devil, those who hate Christ, their temporary victory over the permanent victory of Christ. We understand that. That's a second figurative language he uses. The disciples could not have understood that. They did not understand. He told them repetitively he was going to build the temple. He was going to restore the temple, this body, and I'll restore it in three days. They thought he was talking about the temple. They never got it. But we understand the joy that when Jesus fulfills his work and ministry. Everybody get that? That's the second figurative language. Not a lot of time to spend on that one. But we understand, as I have this in the notes, point B, this victory will be this world temporary rejoicing will be turned upside down when Christ rises from the dead in death. The devil and his followers are defeated forever. God's people will forever have their temporary sorrow permanently changed to victory. And if you want to chew on something that's very exciting, we talked about uh, we're going to see him as he really is. I could go over and over and over verses. But I will read a couple of my favorite ones. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 53, this very, very familiar passage about the resurrection. You talk about permanent rejoicing. You're talking about we're going to see Him as He is when we're going to see Him when we are we have our new bodies. This corruption is going to put on incorruption. Mortal put on immortality. Corruption is put on incorruption. Mortal is put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I could read in the Revelation. I could read about the future glories. Uh, I'll let you look at that. Revelation 19, uh, many verses, I'm not even going to read them, 17 through 21, and then chapter 20, we see the defeat of Satan, uh, 
cast into the everlasting torment. You can read about these things. Temporary, permanent. Ours is permanent. Figurative language number three. He uses this allegory now. This allegory is of woman going into labor. So he uses this labor allegory. Woman going into labor. And he uses this analogy, as all of you women know who have children, that that the pregnancy and the delivery and the final delivery is difficult at best, hellish at worst, and you all have your stories, the suffering and the pain, and us poor guys who held your hand have no comprehension of what you went through. Right? Although we tried, but we don't. So he uses this analogy that some of the disciples would understand. Some of them had families. Some of them didn't. But he talks about this woman going into labor. And he uses this common phraseology. uh, uh, A woman, when she's in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she's given birth, she no longer remembers the anguish. But there's joy that a human being has been born into the world. Did you forget the anguish pretty quick? Was it worth it? So we see this analogy, this figurative speech, as we got people hugging each other, how touching. This third one, there are many, there are at least three meanings to this one. And uh, I'm going to be bored. bored, uh, We understand meaning number one is pretty simple, and that's the temporary sorrow turns into joy. Jesus is, is risen. And there is now joy as opposed to the sorrow of those three days when they were lost and wandering and wandering and didn't have any understanding of what he had told them. So meaning number one is obvious and it's the temporary sorrow of the death. Temporary sorrow of Jesus' death. Everybody get that one? Disciples didn't even get it. But we can look back and know what it meant. Meaning number two. I think this is going to be something pregnant with meaning that's going to uh, encourage us. The second one. This woman's, and I have have, uh, put in italicies, it's not in the text. This hour of travail. This time before uh, the giving of birth. This time of pain and sorrow. This hour of travail typifies something. And it typifies uh, Jesus' ministry. Remember all the, every time he ministered and something would happen, he would say, it's not yet my hour. I've come for a specific purpose at a specific time. But all of these things, you know, when he turned the water into wine... They was going to take him and make him king. And his he, he had to even contradict his mother in a loving way. He said, my hour is not yet come. And so this this uh, hour of travail really dovetails Jesus' ministry. And it shows his timing, how perfect it was. And some of the events uh, were ordained at his specific uh, 
and his specific will. And so we see this hour of travail and it dovetails with this, this time in his ministry through his suffering, through his persecution, by his being ridiculed, by his not being believed, even by his own family. But we look at these verses, 2, 4, his hour is not yet come. We've looked at these, 7.30. If you look at John 7.30, so this hour of travail, uh, one thing it does, it typifies his time and his ministry and the timing. 7.30 says they're going to they're gonna take him. Uh, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That is 7.30. And these are in your notes, uh, the, these verses, so I don't have to write them again. 8.20 tells us. About this hour of travail, his ministry, Jesus spoke in the treasury. He taught in the temple. No one laid a hands on him for his hour had not yet come. The purpose why he came on this planet, that's 820, uh, 1223, same verbiage. Uh, speaking of his timing in his ministry, this hour of travail he's going through and going to go through. Uh, we see that in 12, uh, 1223. Uh, Jesus said the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And he talks about a grain of wheat being put into the ground. That means speaks of his death and then rising up in the, in the fruit it bears. We've talked about all these. So that's one of the things uh, that it uh, talks about. And I think the last thing uh, is that uh, I like what one of my commentators says. He says, lastly, in the broadest sense... The grieving disciples picture the church longing to have Christ work finished in them through the redemption of the body through glorification. So the, the third meaning of this is that this time of sorrow when a woman about to give birth, this time of Jesus' ministry on the earth when his timing, but it all points to uh, uh, us as Christians, the church today, as we wait this is our time of sorrow as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. What do I mean by that? Very self-explanatory. The redemption of our bodies. We, Scripture says we groan. We long to be released from this sin struggle. Every one of us can testify that every day we fight our, war, our natures, we fight the world system, we, fi- we fight uh, our enemy. Every day we do things we don't want to do, and we don't do what we want to do, Romans 7. And every day we long to be clothed with our bodies from heaven. We long to that day when our bodies are glorified, when we no longer have a sin nature, when we no longer live in a body of sin, and we no longer will be tempted to sin, and will no longer be able to sin. And so this time of, of labor of a woman birth, this time of Jesus' ministry of birth, fully is a picture, figurative language, of this the great struggle in our Christianity, the struggle between right and wrong, the great struggle for the renewing of our minds. And we all hope, one day for the resurrection of our bodies. And that is found in many verses. I pretty much quoted it. But look at, look at Romans 8 again. This is what this hour of travail, this sorrow, temporary sorrow. This is, I think, a great description. 
in figurative language of what this is talking about. Romans 8. If you want to chew on this a while, verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed, what? In us. The earnest expectation of the, cre- of the creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who suggested it, subjected it in hope, because the creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. There's that analogy. Together until now, not only that, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, we await for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that's not seen. Why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope what we do not see, we wait for it with perseverance. And if you want a, a verse to chew on, one of my favorite verses to chew on. I say that all the time. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Reading through 5, 1 through 6. Therefore we do not lose heart. For our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is for a moment, is working a far more eternal weight of glory. While we don't look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are permanent, eternal. For we know if our earthly house, this tent, our body is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal. In this we groan, we desire to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. So on and on, this is the great hope of the believer Glorified bodies, no more sin, no more struggles, no more sickness, no more sorrows, no more nada. Everybody understand that? So that's a lot of meaning, huh? Now lastly, and I'm going to have to erase this, as we get to figure number four, we'll just go here and we will erase this and we'll get to point number four. We see this, point number four, in this figurative language is, and this is complicated. I want to spend the last few minutes on this, and then if I have to talk about overcoming the world next time, no problem. This stumbles, this causes a lot of people to uh, really be confused. Verse 23, this is figurative language. It refers to prayer. And I want us to get this along with everything else. In this context, Jesus is speaking figuratively to his disciples because they're not going to be able to grasp this concept yet because the Spirit hadn't yet come to indwell them. So he tells them this little ditty about prayer. Verse 23, And in that day... You will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say unto you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. 
These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. A time is coming when I no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I don't say to you that I would pray the Father for you, for the Father loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. What is this figuratively speaking when it deals to prayer? And there are several things in here I want you to see. Very complicated. I hope I'll make it less. In that day, it's talking about Pentecost. So when he says in that day, he is referring to the coming of the Spirit, and he is referring, referring to Pentecost in that day. You don't get it yet. I'm speaking to you figuratively. This is going to happen. You're going to look back on this and then you're going to go, aha. In that day, you will ask me nothing. Simply it means I'm not going to be there. I'm gone. You are not going to personally look at me and say, Jesus, I need this or I need that. So at the day of Pentecost, I'm gone, been gone 10 days. You're not going to ask me personally anything. Everybody understand that? Pretty simple. They wouldn't have understood that. Okay, the first word is ask. The Greek word, there's two Greek words here. The first Greek word in verse 23, the first word ask means inquiry. And the second Greek word ask in verse 23 means petition. Do you know the diff between an inquiry and a petition? What is the difference between an inquiry and a petition? Any comments about that one? Jesus said, in that day at Pentecost, you're not going to ask me anything because I'm going to be gone. You're not going to inquire of me anything. You're not going to inquire of me. You're not going to personally ask me to explain something to you. You're not going to make a general inquiry into uh, what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and what that meant. Something an inquiry is a general uh, uh, uh Expression of information. Thank you, Miss School Teacher. Thank you. Information, inquiry. But then he says, Most assuredly I say unto you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, this ask is petition. So what he's, he's saying is, I don't want to be too simple with this. He's saying, You're not I'm not gonna have to pray. You don't have to ask me to ask the Father. You have a direct line to the Father through the Holy Spirit in my name. Is that pretty simple? Aforementioned, unknowable by the disciple. You, I'm not going to be here. You are not going to ask for information from me because I'm not going to be here. But you are going to be able to petition my Father directly through the Spirit in my name. They would that would have blown every brain cell in their head. But now we look back and we get it. Jesus teaches us, My Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We are taught to pray to the Father in Jesus' name, and that is all accomplished through the work of the Holy Spirit within us, right? The Holy Spirit helps us to pray, utter groanings we don't understand. He teaches us to pray, and we pray in Jesus' name. Now, what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? I don't have time to explain this in full detail, but it means to pray, as I have in my note, 
in his merit, in his righteousness, his will. So when we pray, as the Holy Spirit encourages us, as we are obedient to him, as our lives are consistent, as we have, un- we have sin confessed, we're up to date, as he matures us in praying, we pray in the Father, we pray in... To the Father, according to the merit of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the will of Christ, thy will be done. And so Jesus is just telling his disciples through this figurative language, your prayer life is going to change and it's going to become more effective and more effectual. And he's not saying, I'm not going to pray for you anymore because Scripture tells us that he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. That's Hebrews 7.25. So we know he's not saying, hey, I don't have to pray for you anymore. And we see that Hebrews 7. Well, you know that verse. I just quoted it if you didn't know it. Uh, but we know Romans 8.34. The Spirit utters groanings that cannot be heard. So the Spirit aids us in our prayer. And, and it tells us at the end of 8.34. And let me just go to it. I hate. I don't want to leave nothing out. 8.34. It tells us at the end of that verse that we sometimes don't catch. It tells us... Uh, uh, Actually, it's 8.27, my bad, my bad. 8.27, Romans, tells us, uh, verse 26, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, He who searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He, Jesus, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God, and so does the Spirit. They both work in conjunction as they intercede for us and teach us to pray. So Jesus is not saying that when I go, you don't see me face to face, I'm not going to be praying for you. He does. But we have a direct line to the Father through the Spirit in the name of Jesus. Does everybody understand what he means by that? And then he says, until now you've not petitioned the Father in my name. Ask, petition, and you will receive. And one of the fruits of prayer answered is joy. And so when Ron asked us to pray for Donovan, and Donovan, though he may not be physically healed, is used of God to spiritually heal his children, we have joy in that, right? We have joy when Rusty's family may be reconciled. We have joy when when other families have been reconciled, and we all participate in that joy because we are active in praying for one another, and that's how he encourages the body, right? That's what he's teaching us. Yes. So we can come directly to the Father. We were previously alienated. Now we are adopted and we have the rights and the privileges as sons to cry out, Abba, Father. And Jesus is teaching his disciples that. And so that's the Four figurative languages, the meaning of this that his disciples couldn't grasp, but we look back because the Spirit illuminates us, and by experience, that's very critical, we see how he puts this all together. And uh, I'm not quite sure if I'm going to do 17 next week, because I don't want there to be anybody absent when they hear C-17. And so Christmas... 
maybe a lot of people gone, and I would hate for anybody to miss the greatest chapter in the Scripture. So we'll think about uh, we'll think about next week, and maybe I'll surprise you. I don't know. Anybody have any comments?